1: And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Production Bunker, it's Derek Duvall!
2: Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello. Hey, everybody. Hi. Thank you so much. Please sit. Thank you, everyone. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. (laughs) We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. This episode is brought to you today by the fine folks at BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service and it's 100% online. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash Derek DeVall Show. That's better, H-E-L-P.com slash Derek Show. So welcome back to episode 217 and the conclusion of our two-part interview with the chairman of the Mars Institute and planetary scientist, Dr. Pascal Lee. We have tons more to cover, so let's not waste any more time. Here is the conclusion of the interview. I will ask you now, we're going to move on to the next phase of the interview, and this is the part that I'm most excited about. What inspired you to co-found the Mars Institute?
0: Mars Institute. Well, there was no organization. Mars Institute is a nonprofit research organization, but it does education as well. And it was founded in 2002 it was created because there was no organization in the private sector that was focused on advancing research for the future human exploration of mars Uh, you know i mean jpl is fantastic work with robotics but it's not really looking into human missions in general Uh, uh nasa johnson space center is very focused on ongoing missions and operations like the space station returning to the moon it does mars of course but and it it does actually a lot of thinking about future mars missions but that's the government so that's you know one way of doing it uh what we wanted to create was an organization dedicated to looking at the advancement of the human exploration of mars so it's it's just a nonprofit that we created and there have been other imitators since (laughs) okay Mm -hmm. but um it wasn't designed to grow and become very big. It was just grown to, it was just established to be efficient and productive. And so one of the things that we're quite proud of that came out of our recent studies is something called the astronaut smart glove. If you if you talk to the Apollo astronauts uh, back from their trip on the moon, you know, what what is the single most important thing that could be improved uh with how you did work on the moon exploring and the answer would be well we have to get a better glove the glove was just too restrictive I mean we're in a spacesuit that is when it's pressurized you you're a bit like inside a balloon it the envelope of the spacesuit becomes taut and you you are sort of in a rigid bladder of sorts that's inflated from the inside it's over pressured from the inside and the glove that you are wearing therefore becomes hard to to close your hand with you know, your fingers tend to sort of pop back out into the the gloves and even if you create a resting position of your hand that is semi-closed you, you still need to open your hand sometimes so, so it's sort of the reverse effort it's 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 hard it's hard you have a it's hard to use a glove in your hands and in, in you know during an eva now meanwhile we're flying things like helicopters on mars and one day we think that humans will want to have drones helping them explore mars i mean drones on earth have revolutionized how we do field work you know they've become something we use all the time for mapping for aerial photography for for filming for for just you know even delivering stuff from one spot to another quickly in the field so drones are are you know an incredible tool of of reconnaissance but also utility in exploration and so we shall have d- drones on mars they can fly and but how are you going to operate a drone if the interface stays the way it is now which is using both hands on little joysticks staring at a screen and at the same time keeping an eye on your drone i mean first of all you would get you know thumbitis really quickly with all your fingers on these little joysticks. I mean, even with big joysticks, it'd be a a problem. Uh, so, so we found a solution. We think it's called the astronaut smart glove. And I will just invite your, your listeners to go check it out on YouTube. You just type in astronaut smart glove and you will see our little, little short video, but that video shows you Devon Island. It, I think, you know, makes a clear case that this is an incredible location for for doing this kind of work. Uh, You will see a spacesuit that we're testing it's a it's a spacesuit made by Collins aerospace one of NASA's current contractors for the future moon suit. And we are flying a drone with with spacesuit gloves in fact with just one spacesuit glove and. uh, it's, it's quite something. So, so this is the kind of tech that is, is the result of the Mars society, the, sorry, the Mars Institute being able to, to think out of the box here, uh, and, and, you know, come up with engineering solutions that, that, uh, might otherwise not have been reached.
2: Can you just, other than the glove, can you discuss any breakthroughs or discoveries or you know advancements
0: that the Mars Institute has contributed to? Yeah, well, I will. You know, when it comes to science, there's a lot of things that I do essentially jointly through the Mars Institute and the SETI Institute. Uh, a few, a few years ago, NASA had proposed, sorry, had created an incredible opportunity. 2015, NASA for the first time in history. they did something historic they convene a workshop where we could propose scientists or engineers a future landing site for humans on mars now when that happened i thought that was a real uh, breakthrough moment because when you start asking for community input on a landing site for a human mission that's when a human mission starts to become real obviously when you're NASA asking that I mean, if you're right and even though we were decades away still probably from from a human mission it it you you want to get to that point and so I, I couldn't have welcomed that opportunity more and I led a team uh, of you know my colleagues and students from the Mars Institute the SETI Institute NASA Ames Cornell a few other groups and we proposed a landing site and it turned out to be one of 50 that were proposed to nasa uh, for that workshop and in fact got number 15 it wasn't a ranking it's just (laughs) the order in which they were submitted and i guess we made it just in time but our site was in my view uh, an amazing landing site for humans because not only uh, so it's located at the western end of this gigantic canyon system called Valles Marineris, and it's also on the eastern side it's at the western end of the canyon but on the eastern side of this gigantic province with volcanoes on mars with giant volcanoes and to me this was a very uh good location because if you're interested in searching for life for past life on mars You want to go into the canyons where you can see all the rock layers and look for fossils and all the different rock layers it sort of gives you a record of past mars history and then if you want to look for life that might still be alive today what you want to do is to go underground inside caves in the volcanoes on the volcanoes of mars and on the slopes of the volcanoes of mars because that's where you might still have warmish caves with some moisture with water being vented shelter from radiation from too much cold too much hot you might actually have a good cozy environment inside these caves on volcanoes where we, we would actually have the best chance of finding life on mars today and so you could look for basically past life from this location or extant life life that's still around from this location so this place is called noctis landing and it's only at seven degrees south so it's pretty much near the equator of mars Which is one of the warmer parts of Mars now unfortunately after the workshop uh, one additional constraint was given which was well we should really be going to a place where we know there is ice today because it's going to be very important for humans to extract ice and uh, they need ice for hydration but they also need ice for rocket fuel you can break down h2o into h2 hydrogen and o2 oxygen so that's rocket fuel so we should therefore go to a place where we know that there is ice and unfortunately the places where we knew that there was ice today are all at relatively high latitude and they tend to be in much more boring country like flat plains with ice at shallow depth so it'd be very important for survival and fuel efficiency, but on the other hand, you're, I mean, you're talking about landing in a place, let alone setting up a base in a place that has only very short-term value scientifically, in my view, compared to a place like, you know, where you can access the canyons and the volcanoes. Um, not to mention that all these places fail in what I call the David Scott factor. David Scott was the commander of the Apollo 15 mission to the moon. And at the time of his mission, scientists were still bickering about which landing site they should go to. There were two finalists. One was a place called Marius Hills with volcanoes, little cones, little cinder cones. And the other place was Hadley Rill with an ancient collapsed lava tube, but a mountainous uh, backdrop of the lunar highlands and at the same time flat mare surfaces in the foreground anyway to help the decision process david scott put his foot down and said well okay these two places are very interesting scientifically but which one would be more beautiful is i paraphrase but that's essentially what he asked which one would be more appealing to the public which one would be more beautiful and the answer was unanimous it was pretty much it was The apollo it was the hadley apennine mountains site the site with the with the mountainous backdrop and the lava tube so that that's that's what i call the david scott factor i mean every site being equal let's assume that was even true you know you want to go to the one that's most inspiring and and beautiful and grand uh for for just our human psyche so so anyway, Noctis Landing, the site we had proposed, I, I thought uh, fulfilled the David Scott factor, uh, but these other sites, you know, were really, but they were water rich. So I'm. This is a bit of a long response, but I, the point that I'm getting to is this: uh, we we then over the intervening years since 2015, been really looking more closely at the region we had proposed to see if there really weren't signs of water ice being present. And sure enough, last December, we found a glacier. Not a little patch of ice, okay, a glacier. <laughs> okay, A glacier with typical signatures of glaciers, crevasse fields, moraine bands, foliation, which is sort of the twisting and mangling of the ice upstream of, a, of an ice tongue. Incredible. And we found that in an area that had been essentially b- brushed off so to speak as being just disturbed terrain by you know the first people who looked at that location and you know sure enough with the help of of all the beautiful data that nasa's missions have sent back especially mars reconnaissance orbiter uh we we identify this glacier now what we're seeing is not ice what we're seeing is salt it's like a salt deposit that would have all the fine scale features of a glacier, but that only makes sense because if it were ice, since we're near the equator, it would be impossible. Ice is not stable at this location because the temperatures are relatively high even by Mars standards. And so there shouldn't be any ice there. It wouldn't wouldn't be able to stay there. However, if the ice is covered in salt, and we have examples of that here on earth in Bolivia for example there are salt flats where there are icebergs from ice from the ice age that are still surviving to today because they are blanketed by windblown salt salt that has been uh you know draping these icebergs and preserving them now from evaporation and melting uh if you have salt blanketing the ice, then the ice is protected and now you have the possibility that there's actually ice there underneath the salt. And there wouldn't be a huge thickness of salt because you can still see the features of the, of the glacier, the, the crevasses and all this. If it was a huge blanket, you wouldn't preserve all these features. So, uh, the big exciting thing that you, I mean, so another example, something exciting that the Mars Institute has contributed, is essentially the discovery of this glacier uh, near the equator of mars where the ice might still be there underneath a blanket of salt and this past summer with a with a student a high school student actually we moved our initial landing site from the 2015 proposed location to one that's even better now it's just a few kilometers a few clicks from the glacier, and it's a beautiful flat surface surrounded by a few dunes. But there's some little rocky hills in the, the foreground, and that's perfect because you are able to set up a base and at the same time have a rocket launch pad and landing pad right nearby without being exposed to the sandblasting of your rocket engines. So, you want to be close to a place where you could land but not directly exposed to it so ideally it's got some little hills in between uh and uh like little islands so you can easily hide your base from a launch pad landing pad and then you can also hide a nuclear power generator to to supply the base to shield the base itself from all the radiation that would come out from a nuclear reactor Hmm. Uh, so uh I guess I'm happy to report that not only have we found a Glacier on Mars at the Mars Institute again in collaboration with all our partners but but also a landing site uh where where humans could could go so I mean of course you know chances are NASA will pick some other spot and <laughs> just, <laughs> you know yeah nice my Pascal but uh hey if it turns out to be the place where we go it'd be pretty exciting to be aware of it now
2: Right. Speaking of, you know, that's like, how does the institute engage with the public? You know, raise awareness about Mars exploration, and how is NASA communicating its message about the future of humanity in space?
0: I, I think NASA is doing actually a, a fantastic job, uh, especially lately, uh, with keeping the public excited about what it's what it's doing in space. Uh, I mean, there was a phase, I think, during which. You know what nasa was doing was a little bit too far from these exciting destinations being within reach like the moon and mars when we were just operating a space station or building it or just flying the space shuttle i mean you know if you that i will i remain enthralled by that shuttle and station program but i can see how it, it lacked some of the ingredients that the public relishes when it comes to thinking about the possibility of, of space travel and exploration and roaming around on the moon or Mars, but we're going to the moon now, and so I think I think that's a that's a great thing. Uh, so so we we find ourselves at the Mars Institute uh, doing things that are more in the direction of advocating for for human missions to Mars. By the way. Uh, i'm i'm personally not big on mars colonization i mean elon for example will tell you that you know his reason for going to mars is to um become us becoming a multi-planet species that in itself is sort of a nice idea but but then you know you sometimes hear that you know we should go to mars because it's an insurance policy essentially for i mean what if something catastrophic happens to earth at least we have a backup and You know, first of all, I don't think it's a good reason to explore space, to think of it as an insurance policy, okay? But second, can you imagine what would have to happen to Earth if it actually became less livable than Mars? Right. Okay. I mean, Mars right now, I often say there are five things that will kill you on Mars if you venture on the surface of Mars right this minute, unprotected. The first thing that will kill you within seconds is a low atmospheric pressure. So all the blood that is, all the gases that are dissolved in your bloodstream, the nitrogen and the oxygen you just breathe in, would bubble up. Uh, your blood would essentially boil at ambient temperature if you were exposed to the Martian surface unprotected right now. Within seconds, you're dead, uh, and you know total recall notwithstanding that, that that makes no sense whatsoever you would not survive the tens of seconds that 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 Arnold survived <laughs> okay you, you would be you would be dead and you would fizz to death it'd be cruel and unusual okay if you didn't die of that then the second thing that will kill you is the, the fact that the atmosphere is not breathable it's made of carbon dioxide which is toxic and it lacks oxygen which is what you need so you would die of hypoxia low oxygen you would be brain dead within minutes if that didn't kill you then the temperatures will kill you the average temperature on mars is minus 80 degrees fahrenheit 80 degrees fahrenheit um i mean standing on mars you are a human popsicle within a few hours uh before sundown so that's the reality of mars if that didn't kill you and that so that's within a few hours if that didn't kill you then the dust on mars will kill you this was a mistake in the movie and the book the martian uh you know mark watney shovels tons of martian dirt into the cabin to grow potatoes well it turns out the martian dirt is replete with perchlorates and peroxides which are both toxic for you the will attack your thyroid in particular uh, you're dead within weeks inhaling and ingesting this martian dust and not to mention eating the potatoes that are grown from it so you're dead you're not that would not have been a recipe for survival and then finally radiation will kill you over the course of months to years and i don't know why people are so fixated about radiation on mars because it's actually the last thing that will kill you uh but It's probably because there's very little we can do about radiation although you can bury yourself you can bury your your habitats in sandbags and with enough of them you can be relatively well protected Uh, so there are solutions against radiation but it's a little tougher to do so i think that's why we are worried about radiation but in any case what i'm trying to say here is that that's the reality of mars today this is why i don't think it's a place to to raise your kids I mean, they would never get a breath of fresh air. It would just be your life support system. Uh, a, a colony on Mars would essentially be a large group of people in some sort of an intensive care unit. Uh, you know, why you would do that? I mean, if you're exploring the place, so what I see as Mars's future is a bit like Antarctica today. There would be research bases where people would go spend, you know, two to three years at a time. Come back to earth and then there could even be a measure of tourism where either very wealthy people or very lucky ones winning at the lottery would get a trip to mars a journey of a lifetime they would get to spend a few weeks on mars try out the spacesuit go to the edge of the canyon uh, share their experience uh just like we do in antarctica antarctica has been doing that kind of tourism uh you know for for a few years now for decades now um and but i don't see uh, us moving uh, a huge chunk of humanity there nor do i see a huge branch of human civilization sort of uh expanding there because it's it's a god forsaken place i mean there's there's no running water to begin with and think of everything that you it's not just the fact that okay it would be a real challenge to to recycle things and to to become good at all this it's like you know what would be the purpose you're still faced with a planet that is not going to be that's lethal for you and you know no no nothing can be extracted on mars that would cost less than extracting it from the earth okay right. unless you're using it on mars so it's like i i I, I, as much as I see a future for large colonies in space, in earth orbit, even giant wheels, even, and all of this O'Neillian vision for space exploration, I, and as much as I want to explore Mars as a, as a place that's exciting to explore for science and adventure, I, I just don't see it as a place for, for human colonization. And I hope that by the time it even becomes potentially possible, that we will have identified and found earth-like planets around other stars exoplanets with oxygen atmospheres probably no intelligent life on them but maybe animals and they could become destinations for us to go on interstellar voyages and i find i find organizing an interstellar voyage more practical actually and feasible than than terraforming mars or or colonizing mars uh, and again, thinking of Mars as a backup, I mean, you know, the Earth would have to really get severely hit <laughs> by, by by a number of disasters before it could, it could become possibly less livable than Mars. Right.
2: With the way things are right now, how many years are we away from a human being setting foot on Mars?
0: It's a bit anybody's guess. Uh, you know, uh, I think a big opportunity we have historically is Elon and his his personal drive to see humans go to Mars he has organized and created the means to do it Uh, we're not quite there yet his his particular scenario is a bit problematic in the sense that you know he, he designed a craft to send well he has a scenario where he sends a lot of people to Mars at a time uh and and in my view that scenario hasn't really looked carefully enough yet at how to set mars up for that first but there are two things that are critical to his current scenario of using starship to get people to Mars one is in orbit refueling which is needed to go to the moon as well with starship so that's something that we should be looking out for in the years to come uh it's how to refuel a a large ship in space in earth orbit and then eventually well in earth orbit uh in order to to fill it up so that it can go to the moon or mars uh that's something that's going to happen in the years to come but it has never been done before and it's super dangerous it's it's got all kinds of you know issues with it uh but i i trust that elon and spacex will will manage to pull that off and that will be a A big important thing to to be able to do but the other thing is that his scenario relies on us extracting methane and oxygen from the co2 and the water on mars now that's also easy easier said than done uh extracting water is going to be a bit of a challenge co2 at least is in the atmosphere um these are these are processes and at a scale that have essentially never happened yet uh so I think that um I see it succeeding ultimately but I wouldn't be surprised if a first human mission to the surface of Mars wouldn't happen until the late 2030s possibly the early 2040s and uh you know i'd like to see it happen sooner but i think that's that's what we're looking at at the earliest um and there's a bunch of assumptions there the other thing to realize is that there are there are good times to go to mars and there are bad times to go to mars and even though down the road we might care less uh because we will have done the journey you know often enough for the early missions we probably want to to go in relative safety Uh, So a good time to travel to Mars is when Mars is not too far from the Earth. Mars is actually traveling around the Sun in a relatively squished elliptical orbit. So the distance between Mars and the Sun and therefore us uh, in the inner solar system can change quite drastically. So there are periods of time when you can connect to Mars by the short way or by the long way. So I think early missions should try to target the short way second you want to be traveling for radiation's sake uh since we're not going to know exactly how humans react to radiation exposure until we sort of send them on these kinds of journeys Uh, you want to do this when the sun's activity is high because uh, the sun undergoes activity cycles with a period of about 11 years it's anywhere from 9 to 13 years actually it's not very regular but on average 11 years and so right now we are in a cycle currently today in a cycle of increasing solar activity there's going to be more and more sunspots for the next uh, few years Uh, we we are in cycle 25s since uh, the 1700s when it was started to be tracked Uh, and um, a period of high solar activity is good for traveling to mars because what the solar activity does is that it pushes back on the radiation that's coming from the rest of the galaxy the galactic cosmic rays in particular and so in space you're exposed to radiation from two sources galactic cosmic rays which are super high energy and nasty and solar particle events which are nasty as well but not quite as nasty (laughs) And the good thing is that when you have more solar radiation, you have less galactic radiation. So a good time to travel to Mars, or at least it's a more optimal time to travel to Mars is when the solar activity actually is high. And so the next time when solar activity is high and the distance to Mars is at its minimum is going to be 2035. Okay. So 2035 would be a good time to go if we were ready. And that's, however, only a decade away and there's a lot to do before we do this, I would actually encourage people to think of going to Mars without worrying about landing for the very first mission, just go around Mars, check out its moons, which are spectacular and super interesting, even touch them and explore them. They're like uh, little asteroids. Uh, And if I think that was if, if that was the only goal we had for that very first mission to Mars, just to get there and come back and carry somehow enough fuel with us to do that, then we could pull it off by 2035. And that would be a good time to try it.
2: How do the moon's Phobos and Deimos feature in the plan for human
0: exploration of Mars? So not at all. In fact, I, I had a sitting down lunch with uh, Elon, I remember a few years ago when when I brought that up. He was not interested in Phobos and Deimos. He he told me, you know, Pascal, I... Because I was saying, you know, Phobos and Deimos would be a perfect stepping stone to going to Mars from a programmatic standpoint. We, we don't need to go to Phobos and Deimos from an engineering standpoint to achieve Mars. But if we're going to go to Mars at all, it, it's, it's nice to sort of shake down the hardware to get to Mars and back first, and then worry about landing, which is a whole different bag of worms, and then surface operations, yet another one. Um, and you could you could do a round trip to Mars relatively cheaply not only that but you can use our current spacesuits for example you don't have to invent surface suits for mars um you can just use our current spacesuits and uh if you, all you're doing is going to mars orbit and checking out its moons so but you know he he, he wouldn't hear any of it he i mean he was nice and courteous but he said no if you want to go to mars go to mars was his answer And I think at at some level that is actually Elon's strength because he's super focused on his objectives. And, you know, my suggestion there wasn't to be distracted by by Phobos and Deimos. I saw that on the contrary as something that would actually make it happen sooner by creating a short-term goal that was more achievable quickly. Uh, But... Maybe this is a conversation that can be revisited, but I remember at the time it was it was shot, it was dead on arrival <laughs> okay. uh, with Elon. But uh, yeah, I, I still maintain that that would be a right thing to do and a good thing to do.
2: What's Elon like?
0: Well, I don't know him that well. I mean, I've, I've met him a few times. We, you know, hung out a little bit. I visited his factory, which is impressive. Uh, I thought he was very personable and very you know he's definitely a visionary person in recent years with you know his comments and his politics i'm i'm you know I'm, I'm not on board uh i'm not even on board the fundamental reason why he says we should be going to mars although you know in the broader sense being a multiplanet species i like that but i tend to think exoplanets you know not necessarily us being large populations on on mars for example but those are technicalities i think you know uh in general i think elon's heart is in the right place he he means to do well he wants to have a positive impact he intends to to you know do good and help humanity um but with so much power and influence it's it's sometimes hard to yeah to stay uh you know likable
2: starship launches again on friday i'm interested to see how it goes up
0: yeah i hope so too that's a that's another big one so once it achieves orbit that will be big step one step two will be then to launch several starships the first one with an empty fuel tank was well, you know a bit empty fuel tank and then send up other starships with fuel to then refuel the one with the empty fuel tank uh and then go from there so you know I would give at least five years to each one of these milestones so that will take us well into the next decade yeah so
2: why should the the search for life on Mars go underground well
0: uh okay in a nutshell all life on Earth is related you me my dog e coli in our stomachs mushrooms uh gnats we are all related we all use dna and the closer and we all part we're all members of this genetic tree called the tree of life on earth and the closer you are to this diagram on this diagram that looks like a tree the closer you you are to another branch on this tree, the more DNA you share in common with that life form. But even with the most remote branches of this tree, we share DNA in common. And this goes back to the fact that we all came from one or very few common ancestors. Now, not only does life use, with no exception, all life on earth, past and present, use DNA it's not just the structure of the DNA that's interesting and very remarkable but the specific bases that are used in the molecule it's only four bases that are used on the DNA molecule okay so four molecules that that construct that whole. uh, double helix. And so that's a very remarkable. uh, narrow signature of life on earth. Now on top of that, and there's also the fact that all proteins on earth, which, which means your flesh, my flesh, the, the, the protein that all life forms use on earth, plants included, are made by the same set of 20 amino acids. In fact, life on Earth uses 22, up to 22 amino acids, so some life forms use two more. But the bottom line is that they use those same 22 amino acids or 20 to 22 amino acids and among thousands of amino acids that are possible in nature and exist on earth. So there's a very selective set of amino acids that are used by life on earth. And not only that, but we only use the left-handed version of the amino acids, not the right-handed one. So amino acids turn out to be molecules that have mirror images of each other, the way they're structured. We, all life on Earth uses the left-handed version, not the right-handed. Okay. So now that's quite remarkable. And when we say we go to Mars to look for life, what we mean is that we want to find the first example of a life form that does not fit onto the tree, the genetic tree of life on Earth. That's what we mean by alien life. You, that's the whole point. going to another planet to to look for alien life because if we find alien life of course that would have huge implications alien life meaning that life that started on its own separate from life on earth on a different planet and therefore life is probably common in the universe and you know that has a huge amount of implications if we find just one example of alien life okay now how do you define this alienness well it has to for example use not be based on dna either use genetic material that is structurally different from dna or uses the dna structure but then uses molecules that are different from the bases that earth life uses or it uses a different set of amino acids for its proteins like it might still have flesh made of protein but using amino acids that are different from the set of 22 or some that are not left-handed okay <laughs> but right-handed ones okay so so that's how you would define alienness now right now uh, i consider that the missions that we're sending to mars to roam around the surface and look for signs of past life in particular i mean I, they are all these missions are engineering wonders, and I tip my hat to all the engineers behind them. And they are also scientifically interesting and exciting. Okay, but in my view, and when it comes to the search for life on Mars, they are suboptimal, to put it mildly, because even if we found, even if Perseverance is driving through, you know, uh, a road cut, <laughs> and there were giant bones sticking out of the rock face okay and you know you've clearly found life on mars you'd be hard pressed to prove that it's alien life and that's because earth and mars are not isolated planets we have on earth meteorites that have come from mars in fact close to 300 of them uh and so the way this happens is that mars gets hit by asteroids and comets and the big ones lob pieces of mars out into space most of them are lost forever but some end up on earth we pick them up as a meteorite from mars you know and vice versa there has to be earth rocks on mars earth has been hit by asteroids and comets pieces of earth have been thrown into space we know that's possible because uh just recently we found a piece of ancient earth in fact, it's the oldest earth rock that we know of it is actually embedded in a moon rock brought back by the apollo 14 astronauts which is quite incredible hmm. they brought back this big chunk of rock and inside it is embedded a fragment of earth rock that got melded into that rock when it formed on the moon and so we know that earth rocks can travel into space and they right now on Mars there's got to be Earth rocks sitting there at the surface of Mars okay and so life could have been transferred from Earth to Mars we especially early in the Earth's history when impacts were very frequent and very violent you know large amounts of Earth rocks could have been tossed and, and ended up on Mars with Earth life transported to Mars in that process so life could have picked up on Mars evolved then Maybe at its own sluggish pace, whatever, but you could end up having animal fossils on Mars that are essentially nothing more than just cousins of Earth life. They would not be alien life. They would be, in that scenario, just cousins of Earth life. And so. You wouldn't know is my point. You find giant bones sticking out of a road cut. You will not know for sure whether it's earth life that you found again or really genuine alien life on Mars. The only way you would be able to determine if the life you found is alien is if you do genetic analysis on it. If you look for DNA and you find it or not. And if you look for amino acids making up the proteins, and to do that you have to find that life alive fossils won't do this is why to put it mildly the search for life on mars that we're conducting right now looking for paleo biosignatures ancient signs of life is a waste of time or to put it more kindly suboptimal (laughs) (laughs) because because what you really want to do is do what the first viking missions did when they landed on mars viking one and two they looked for life that was still alive on mars we should be after extant life on mars not fossil life to to establish the alienness of it if we find any and we now understand that the martian surface is really too inhospitable it's zapped by uv i mean ultraviolet radiation on mars is 800 times what it is on earth you would tan 800 times faster on mars (laughs) don't spend an afternoon at the beach spend three minutes at the beach okay and then you are tan okay Uh, but that's just uv there's also cosmic rays i mean the surface of mars is nasty 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 for any form of life on earth including extremophiles some life forms on earth could survive this or that factor that is extreme on mars but not the full combination of martian surface conditions so the general thinking is that life is really going to be hard pressed to survive to be alive at the martian surface however it's entirely different if it's if you go underground and there are two ways to go underground: the the hard way and the easy way the hard way is to drill your way into the underground that's very tough because the ground is super cold super frozen uh, and you have to go really deep something like two to five kilometers so we're talking about one and a half to three miles deep a bit like oil drilling on earth only in terrain it's a lot more difficult uh to get to the point where temperatures are high enough for the water in the ground to be liquid so i mean it may seem a little geocentric to be looking for liquid water because that's somehow what earth life likes but the truth is water is not a random molecule it's first of all very common in the universe uh and it's a universal solvent it's it has a very neutral ph it has all kinds of very good likable properties for something like the processes of biology and you know you can twist your brain and come up with some other substance that might have this or that Set of properties that could be an alternate but there's nothing that even approaches the universality of abundance and flexibility if you will for chemistry that water has so my bet is that all life is going to use liquid water okay I mean that's at least let's say it's a hypothesis it's not an unreasonable hypothesis so so let's start by looking for things that we would recognize that's another way of putting it before we get more creative with you know speculation okay if you if you realize now that your challenge is to look for life that's buried for it to find to still be alive deep drilling is not the way to go you want to go to natural caves luckily Mars has over a thousand no of known pits and caves and some of the most spectacular ones are on the flanks of its giant volcanoes and i think that that's actually the best shot that we have to enter an environment that's sheltered from radiation the cold the micrometeorites and at the same time might actually be rich in water because what volcanoes vent is above all water vapor and also um, these are places that might have um nutrients in the sense that some of the volcanic products like sulfur deposits can be actually quite uh bu- bug friendly if you are into sulfur <laughs> okay so what i'm saying here is is i think that our search for life on mars should refocus on looking for life that's still alive and doing that underground and therefore doing it and of course the easy way in the ground which is to go into caves and um, I, I hope that answers your question Yeah, very much so
2: okay Deval Nation we are going to go ahead and take a small break right here but we will be right back with the conclusion of this interview with Dr. Pascal Lee may I just you take this time to refresh that drink and take some super long deep breaths you know that's right Cluzo style
0: out with the bad air in with the good out with the bad air in with the good
2: Pay attention to a few friends in my show, and we will be right back.
1: Hello, Duvall Nation. Derek Duvall here. Mental health is not only a top priority in my life, but it should be in yours, too. As a combat military veteran, I have seen what untreated mental health looks like, which is why I've been using a therapist for well over a decade. Seeing a trusted therapist has helped me reconcile life events and other important things I've been witness to since returning home from the service, and has changed my life for the better in many ways. Which is why going forward I am pleased to announce that BetterHelp will be sponsoring The Derek DeBall Show. BetterHelp is the world's first therapy service and it's 100% online. With BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 30,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. To get started, you just answer a few questions about your needs and preferences in therapy. That way, BetterHelp can match you with the right therapist from their network. get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash Derek Duvall show. That's betterhelp.com slash Derek Duvall show. Hey there, this is Frankie Ray and you're listening to The Derek Duvall Show. My latest single, Over Now, is available on all streaming platforms. Hope you like it.
0: Enjoy listening to podcasts and ever wonder, can I make a podcast? But it seems so complicated and good audio production can take time. What if there was a way to create an amazing podcast easily? Well, now there is. Introducing Podcasting Made Easy from Podcastic Audio. My production team will handle your entire audio production, allowing you to be the star of your show. This is podcasting made easy. How easy? Well, so easy you don't even have to press record. Now that's easy. Your listeners are waiting. Let's deliver. Sign up for a free strategy call today at slash easy.
1: This is Marielle Sanji, the author of The Absinthe Frappe from LSU Press. Have you ever wondered about the mysteries of absinthe? The spirit is packed with history, and in my book, I explore the myths and facts behind this elusive liquor. What is it about absinthe that appealed to artists like Vincent van Gogh? How did the absinthe frappe cocktail take the country by storm in the 19th century? Why was absinthe banned? And how were the restrictions on absinthe lifted? Dive into the world of absinthe in the absinthe frappe, available wherever you prefer to buy your books.
0: Hey, it's Michelle Fabre, and you're listening
1: to The Derek Duval Show. You can hear my brand new single, I'm All That I Need, on all streaming platforms right now. Cause I'm all that I need to get by Yes, I'm all that I want, I'll tell you why Janae Sergio
0: You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold.
2: Welcome back to episode 217 of The Derek Duvall Show. Let's get right back to it with the conclusion of our interview with the co-founder and chairman of the Mars Institute, Dr. Pascal Lee. Um, potatoes and dirt aside, did you like to
0: film The Martian? Well, you know, I, I okay. First of all, I, I read the book first the book uh i happen to know andy weir He, he he used to live in mountain view we were sort of neighbors and i i met him at several book signings in fact we we did some science versus fiction joint gigs together with his book signings so andy's a friend and he's he's a super smart guy okay uh but his book had a number of uh inaccuracies the you know, the, the best known one of which is the very premise of how Mark Watney, his hero got stranded on Mars. The astronaut got stranded on Mars because there was a dust storm and it blew over a satellite dish that then hit him and he was left for dead. Well, it turns out that even though winds on Mars can be fast, the, the air is so thin on Mars that there is no way, not even close that any gust of wind or any storm could actually apply enough dynamic pressure to blow off a satellite dish not even close so I mean it's a bit like you being in the stratosphere of the earth facing the jet stream which is this you know very fast moving stream of atmosphere coming at you it can reach speeds of 400 kilometers per hour okay 280 miles per hour and you would hardly feel a breeze because the air is so thin the air is so thin you would you wouldn't be pushed over so that's sort of the situation with dust storms on mars it it can't push anything over (laughs) that's that's significant so um so right so that's a problem he realized relatively quickly and and he wanted to change that but by then uh random house or I think, uh, crown publishing had, had purchased the rights to his book. And they said, no, don't touch it. (laughs) We like the story as it is, you know, don't go chasing after inaccuracies at this point. So he couldn't change it. And he was frustrated by that. But yeah, the, the Martian dirt was another thing. Okay. It it would be, you would have toxic potatoes. Um, and then the movie comes along, but of course I, I can, I can watch a movie like this, like. I think my family would, okay, because that's my day job. Okay. It's, it's a bit like, you know, I, I'm guessing a medical doctor watching ER, they, they have got to wince and (laughs) at, at some of the details at least. Okay. Even though those are usually pretty well done, uh, here, I mean, it was in my view, so far off the design of the Rover in particular. Uh, didn't make any sense uh i i have a hard time watching this and enjoying it i mean to me the the best science fiction movie ever made remains 2001 a space odyssey uh i you know i just super work um i mean there are a few others that are quite good uh but uh Yeah, so the Martian, Martian, I I couldn't get over the the problems, to be honest. Fair enough.
2: Pierre Coubertin said, the most important thing in life is not the triumph, but the struggle. Pascal, you get a chance to talk to your younger self. What do you say to him?
0: Well, Pierre Coubertin was, uh, I think, the father of the modern Olympic Games, right? Correct. Uh, And... um, yeah i I do agree that you you probably learn more from the struggles than you learn a lot from the struggles for sure and you know the i think the art of life sometimes is to turn a struggle into a success story You, you don't want to struggle in a way that dead ends you because if you keep sort of pushing a door that won't open because the door is sealed with concrete it's not going to happen. You know, you got to find a new way to get around the door. So it's, you know, we have plenty of struggles we face in life. And I think the art of going through life is to, is to find ways around, around your struggles to try to minimize them. Yeah. Yeah. But struggles are good because they, 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 they are hurdles to presumably where you want to go and where you want to go is, is, is a good place. So what's next for you? Well, would I have a couple of books that I'm working on that I really would like to sort of move forward on. One is about N equals one, have a discussion about, about that, but in, in writing in the form of a book. Uh, another is about how we're preparing uh, for our journey to, to go to Mars uh, the training we do on earth, the lessons we learned from all these missions in the Arctic and Antarctica. Um, so I like, I'd like to get these books out. And then of course, every year I run this project in the Arctic, the health and Mars project on Devon Island. And so, I mean, on that one, we're always in search for, for funding. And, and, uh, I think NASA has been very supportive and helpful, but, we we've also engaged private partners more and more and and so this is an exciting new way of well it's it's been actually going on for us for quite a while but it's an exciting way of trying to make things happen which is to combine government support with with private funds you sort of one leverages the other and it it works it works out pretty well Um, I'd like to see humans go to Mars and I'm doing everything I can to to make sure we don't dead end ourselves on the Moon Uh, and do end up on Mars I mean one of the concerns I have about the current moon program the Artemis program is that we're sending humans to the South Pole of the moon basically because we've detected hydrogen in substantial amounts at the South Pole which is most likely water water ice but we we don't know really in what form that water ice is how concentrated it is whether it's even extractable and there's there's a there's a bit of a you know go fever to go to the south pole it's, it's like a gold rush but it's a water rush it's a water ice rush to the south pole uh, first of all sending humans to these regions is very challenging it's very challenging in the sense that the lighting is very unfavorable it changes all the time as the moon moves along the shadows are super super extensive because again you're at the South Pole the moon so the Sun and the earth are very low on the horizon Uh, you know you cannot as a human being enter shadowed regions for any length of time because it's too cold in them and so those are really dangerous areas to enter with with humans which is precisely where you i mean the permanently shadow places is where you would find most of the water ice uh, and and so to me there's a there's a conflict between how extreme the environment is where the ice would be located versus our need to send humans back to the moon and to set up shop there what i would do with the Artemis program is de- decouple that Because first of all, we we don't know if the water ice that is at the South Pole Moon will ever be extractable economically. I mean, the fact that there's water ice there is exciting and interesting scientifically, but, you know, is it going to be economically extractable? In other words, will the cost of flying water from the Earth to the Moon ever be um, lower if we extract this water ice on the Moon? and anybody who says yes it will be is kidding themselves or you because we really don't know that uh i mean right now when you can imagine with starship being available it's needed for artemis to get astronauts to the surface with one landing of an artemis rocket you could potentially land 120 metric tons of water on the moon clean water brought from the earth Wherever you want on the moon, okay. And now you have one hundred and twenty metric tons of clean, purified water sitting in a water tower, so to speak, with a tap at the bottom of the rocket. I'm kidding, but you get the you get the point. When will we ever be, and after how much investment will we ever be in a position of having a hundred metric tons of water where we want it on the moon uh, that's clean and purified? extract it, and transport it. I mean, you know, you're talking about, I don't know, it know—it—it—it it could be mega billions before we are ever able to do that. And then bear in mind that water is recyclable. So just because you only have 100 metric tons doesn't mean that, you know, you only have 100 metric tons to use. You, you can use it several times depending on how you use it. Right. So what I'm saying here is just because there is water on the moon doesn't mean that it's going to be you know a resource just like there's gold in the paint of your wall okay in minute atomic amounts doesn't mean that the gold is worth extracting okay you have to have in mining it's called you have to have a concentration you have to have in fact you it has to be economically viable so So until that is established, and this is something that I think humans are not going to be very good at establishing because human missions are going to be super expensive, relatively rare still like maybe two or three a year at most. Um, um, And then they can't even go into the shadow region, so it's going to be of pretty limited extent okay what humans should do is set up a permanent base on the moon. Just like in antarctica i mean the way you explore a vast new piece of real estate or territory is you set up a an outpost you set up a base and we do that in antarctica we have mcmurdo we have a big logistical base and once you have that base you use a mobility system a combination of vehicles planes helicopters snowmobiles tractors you fan out from that base to explore different locations and if you find a site that is really good to do more work in then you you know you set up a temporary camp there or even a mining operation we even see that in 2001 the space odyssey they have alpha or whatever the base is called on the moon and then they take the shuttle that essentially hovers across the lunar surface to the site where they found the stone sticking out of the ground remember it was sticking, you know buried in the ground. Right. That to me is sort of the analogy, you, you know, you, you have a base in a place that's easy to get to in you know, a wide open without all this lighting issues. And then you, you, once you found a place that's interesting, you set up a little operation there and then you go. E- extract whatever you need so. To me, what we should be doing with this water at the poles is to multiply the robotic missions, which right now, NASA is sending left and right to different sites on the moon for science to satisfy science curiosity. During Apollo, the robotic missions were all designed to focus on helping plan human missions. We should do exactly that with the robotic missions. We should not be sending them left and right to answer science questions, which can wait we should send them all to the lunar South pole and have them explore and find the best place for us to possibly extract water in the future. And once we have that place, that's when you set up an outpost from a base on the moon, uh, where humans will start, you know, with, with expertise in mining, start to mess around with the water and extract it and see how, how that works. But, but sending humans up front to a place where it's particularly difficult to explore and to operate and only one crew a year at the stage. For Artemis missions to me is is really not not really useful uh, and so and then meanwhile it delays setting up a base on the moon part of the reason why the Apollo program was abandoned is because no infrastructure was left behind that could be returned to and really used we did what they call what i call sortie missions we went to a different place every time to satisfy scientific curiosity really we didn't build a base this time around we should we should stay away from that pitfall and go to a location that's benign still interesting i mean you're on the moon after all clavius where the 2001 a space odyssey base was set up is actually a beautiful location to do this set up a base there it's near the south pole but it's not cursed by the extremes of lighting and temperature that you see at the south pole uh and the complexity of driving around and operating and we should save our human presence in the polar regions to later when we have scouted out more with robots so that's how i would do an artemis and that's not what we're doing right now Right now we're talking about you know, going landing here and then next mission lands there a different location, but then if you point out that well you're not building an infrastructure now you're, you're leaving assets in different places well the answer you're getting is well. it's not bad to have a few scattered assets, so that you can go from one to the other, and I mean but th- this this doesn't really make sense in terms of an actual plan uh there, there could be a place you land right now where you won't want to return to and then and then what so the assets you set up there are, are just essentially lost and won't be re- revisited again so you know there's there's too much um, <clears throat> there's too much reinvention of the wheel here and also too much rush to get humans to the water when in fact we don't know if it's ever going to be extractable economically right
2: Uh, As we enter the final phase of the interview, I'd like to ask one fun question. Pascal, what do you like to do for fun? How do you like to relax?
0: I paint. I I do space art. Uh, Those of you who are interested in uh, what I paint, I have a website where I post my paintings at pascallee.net. These are mostly oil paintings about space-time travel and Mars exploration. Um, I also sell my paintings at SaatchiArt.com. Uh, but then I, I like uh, flying, of course. I fly, and then I, I love riding. I r- ride motorcycles all the time. Nice. I can't get enough of that. I get a real, uh, it's a, it's, uh, I don't know, it's a real thrill.
2: Fair enough. What would be the best way for my listeners to follow your adventures online?
0: Probably uh, my Twitter uh, feed uh, at Pascal Lee tweets. At Pascal Lee tweets. I'm on Instagram, but I'm not very active on Instagram. And I used to be on Facebook and then I've decided that I didn't want to be on Facebook anymore. So, All so right. Twitter. Twitter. Thanks. All right. Pascal,
2: I am my interviews with my favorite question. And the question is this. If the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would it be the one thing you would like to say to the people of
0: Earth? We are we are one people. We are on one Earth. We are rare. We are special. Uh, we're not here by divine intervention. Or, uh, we're just here by happenstance. And we should recognize our, our fortune, our good fortune to, to exist. And we should do everything we can to accept our differences and get along. All right, Pascal, thank you ever so much
2: for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to speak with me today. This has been an absolute great honor for me, and I've been looking forward to this for a long time. You, sir, have not disappointed in any way, shape, or form. So thank you so much.
0: You're too kind, Derek. The privilege was mine, so I appreciate your your kindness. Thank you.
2: And just like that, Deval Nation, we come to the end of part two of episode 217. I want to thank Pascal for being so gracious with the time and for speaking with me. I was so incredibly lucky to get him on the show, and he did not disappoint in any way, shape, or form. I learned so much about Mars that evening that even I thought possible. Pascal, you are welcome back on my show anytime, my friend. Okay, tune in again next time as we showcase another extraordinary person. We drop our episodes on Mondays and Thursdays, so be sure to keep checking your favorite podcast streaming channel for those episodes to drop. Also, I think it's fair to ask you, the listener, have you enjoyed this episode? I truly hope you have, so please go and hit that subscribe button to keep up to for when new episodes drop. Also, if you're feeling generous, drop us a review. We love reading what our listeners have to say about us, good or bad. We are still enjoying our partnership with the amazing T Public. The Derek Deval Show has a great little store in there. And we have everything with our logo on it, including magnets, stickers, and mugs. Plus, we have some really fun t-shirts on them that Mrs. Duvall and I added ourselves. So please go to our website, DerekDevallShow.com, go to the band bandic merch, click that, and you'll take our store on T Public. And once again, I want to thank them for being such great partners with the show. On behalf of myself and the entire team here at the Derek DeVall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening. We are getting ready to wrap up the first week of 2024. I hope everyone has settled into the new year nicely. If you have got a gym membership, please be patient with the new members. They all mean well, I promise you. Nusda, God bless, and see you next time. Planet Earth.
0: This has been a recording of the Derek Duval show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, derekduvalshow.com for links to merchandise and to explore past episodes. Please find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Derek Duval Show.